So last week we left off with Paul in Ephesus preaching for two years at the Hall of Tyrannus. And we're going to pick up here in Acts chapter 19. We left off with verse 10. We're going to pick up in verse 11. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So we're in Ephesus. Remember, God opened this door in Ephesus. God was performing extraordinary miracles through Paul. Now, these apostolic miracles, you have this, this is something you really have to understand. These apostolic miracles were to validate the message that Paul was bringing to the people. Some of these miracles involved casting out demons from those who were possessed. Jesus earlier had given the apostles specific authority over demons in Mark 3. And Paul, as an apostle, had received that authority. Now remember, Paul wasn't one of the original 12, so I'm going to give you a little backdrop of Paul. In 2 Corinthians, he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So when Paul is writing back to the Corinthians later on, he says, hey, listen, the signs that I perform were the signs of the apostles. So how did Paul become an apostle if he wasn't one of the original 12? It says, last of all, as to one untimely born, this is Paul talking about himself, he appeared also to me. So if you remember, Paul was on the roads of Damascus, right? Jesus appeared to him. And then he says this, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So basically, Paul has the apostolic gifts. And that is why many miracles were done and demons were cast out by Paul in Ephesus. Now, this was a continuation of Jesus's ministry on earth to actually establish the church. So basically, the, the, the first thing I really want to deal with this morning is this. So what do we say when people say things like, I can heal people I can perform miracles. I can cast out demons like the apostles did. What do we say to that? Okay, well, you're going to learn what we're going to say to that. So first, let's deal with the healing miracles. Now, I believe the scriptures teach that these are sign apostolic gifts given to the apostles to validate the message of the gospel that they were preaching. Now, remember, we're in Acts. Acts records the early believers of living out the New Testament, right? So once the New Testament was complete, there is no longer a need for these healings and miracles to validate the gospel message. You get that? So there's no longer a need. So when we look at healings, what do we look at? We look at like, I'm sick, right? I want to be healed. We look at the healing as beneficial to the person being healed. But if you, kind of, if you study the scriptures, you'll kind of see, even in John chapter 9, remember when the, when the people came and said, this blind man, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, what? He said, this man was blind, so the mighty works of God would be displayed in him. So notice this, notice this. Jesus said, this guy 
has this handicap so that the mighty works of God would be displayed. Then what did Jesus do? He healed him. He didn't say, this guy was blind, and you know now the, the gift is, I'm going to heal him. He's saying, this healing is actually validating who I am and what I came for. So let's move on. So when Paul and the apostles were preaching, they used the Old Testament scriptures to connect the dots of Jesus and the prophecies about him and who he actually was. So some could look and say, okay, when Paul and the others were preaching, they could say, well, these are some coincidences. You're taking Old Testament scriptures and you're saying, this is Jesus, okay. But what if this is a coincidence? What if Jesus isn't the real fulfillment of this? And then all of a sudden, what was going on? They started, if Jesus was healing, Jesus was casting out demons. And all of a sudden, what happens? The apostles are healing. The apostles are casting out demons. So now, all of a sudden, these people are like, okay, what these people are saying about Jesus even if it could be a coincidence, now how am I going to explain the fact that these men have a power that's of another world, right? So there is no silver bullet passage that says, that says, okay, these gifts are stopping right this moment, but a proper study of the entirety of scriptures brings us to the conclusion that these were apostolic gifts. So if somebody were to say, I can heal people, I can cast out demons, I can perform miracles, basically, they're, they're not acting in the way that the scriptures allow them to act. So in fact, the miracle or sign gifts are only mentioned in the earliest epistles, such as Corinthians. Later books, such as Ephesians, which we're going to get to in a little bit, and Romans, contain detailed passages on gifts of the Spirit but miracle gifts are not mentioned in those passages. So now the criticism comes, right? From people that believe that God still uses people like you and me to actually heal other people. They'll say things like this, and, and this is, and I'm going to just tell you this, this is spiritual abuse, okay? So if you go somewhere and they say, come forward if you want to be healed, and then they lay their hands on you and say, okay, I'm going to pray for healing, if you don't get healed, do you know what they say? You don't have enough faith. Do you think that's helpful? No. It's actually spiritual abuse, and it actually makes me very angry, okay? So here's the truth. Here's the truth. So then we have to ask the question of this. Does God still heal and perform miracles today? And the answer to that is, of course he does. But these healings and miracles aren't to validate the message because guess what we have? We have the message. We have the complete New Testament. If God chooses to heal someone, right, that's his choice. If God chooses not to heal someone, guess what? His choice too. You and I have no, no people, have been around people, or you yourself might be a person that has been healed by God. And you are praising God for that. But you also know people that have not, right? You also know people that have not. 
So God does heal people, and that's why we pray for them to be healed. God chooses not to heal people, but God doesn't, that doesn't stop us from praying for their healing because we don't know what God's will is for that person. God uses modern medicine. Many of you have been healed through that. And guess what? That wisdom and knowledge and discoveries and understanding, guess where they come from? Smart people, right? No, God, okay? God gives people the brains to figure these things out. We live in such a time where it's amazing what modern medicine has done. And some people will give modern medicine the credit, but you and I need to give the glory to God. What about miracles? Well, yeah, miracles still happen. As in, God will use unlikely people and events to bring people to him and get them where they need to be. Remember, God is working all the time. The fact that you're blinking your eyes right now is actually a miracle. God set the stage for all this to happen. The difference between now and then is that we have the complete word of God. They were living out the word of God. Listen, God can do whatever he pleases, right? We can never put him in a box. God can do whatever he pleases. But when we properly study the scripture, we see certain things happen at certain times for certain reasons. But we have to understand that God is a God of order and design and purpose. God is a God of order, design, and purpose, and not a God of confusion. When Christians start running around claiming to heal people, claiming to perform miracles, guess what? It confuses people. And here's why. Because when they can't, people are like, what's up with the Christians? They said they could do this stuff. Why can't they do it? Oh, we can only do it sometimes. We can only do it if you have enough faith. We can only do it if all the stars align. No, no, that's not the way God works. But now we get into the demons and evil spirits. Normally, I wouldn't talk about things like this on a Sunday morning. So if you have little children, you don't want them to hear. There is a nursery. There's an overflow room. If, because some of this stuff can get downright a little weird, right? But the truth is, the scriptures talk about it. The scriptures teach about it. So we get to demons. Can believers cast out demons like Paul the Apostle did? Now, most people get their doctrine of demons from Hollywood, okay? That's right there. I saw this movie, Pastor Mike. Okay, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, there's plenty of movies out there. There's plenty of crazy things going on on TV and movies. But where do we get our doctrine of demons and Satan from? It has to come from the Bible. So let's pick up and see what happens in this passage. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, so these were traveling Jewish exorcists, which were believed to cast out demons, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. These seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So basically what happened is, is, is they saw that evil spirits were being cast out of people, and it was by Paul. So they must have had this little side hustle thing going on that were saying they were casting out demons. So basically they said, oh, what he's doing has worked, because obviously what we've been doing kind of, mm, we don't know if it works. So they said, let's use Jesus' name 
to cast out these demons. So these traveling Jewish exorcists pretend to have special miracle working powers. Sceva, he was identified as a Jewish chief priest. He had seven sons who went around driving out evil spirits. So he's, they, seeing that success of Paul, basically they said, okay, here's a good formula for us to use. We'll go up to the demon-possessed people or the people struggling, and we'll say, in the name of Jesus, leave. What happens? Let's find out. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? (laughs) And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This is like a scene from a Marvel movie, okay? (laughs) Right? Literally, this guy just beats up seven people, and they go running. A beating they'll probably never forget, right? So the demon answered, Jesus, I know. Then the demon says, Paul, I am aware of, but I don't know you. Now, that's probably a reference to the fact that these guys were not believers in Jesus. They did not have the Holy Spirit. So the demon then turned on them viciously, gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house. So there are some things that we learn about demons just from this short passage. The first is demons are dangerously powerful spirit beings. They can cause people that they possess to do incredibly violent and uncontrollable things. The second is demons recognize valid authority and they fear God. In James 2, you might remember it actually says, even the demons believe and shuddered. Shudder. That's not they believe to be saved. They believe in the authority. They realize Jesus is in charge. It's important to note that the authority over Jesus, only, the authority over demons only belongs to Jesus, and that those whom Jesus gave this authority to. So the demon refused to recognize any other authority in Ephesus. So third, the demons cannot be cast out with some sort of formula going and saying in Jesus' name, like that. They, they, nowhere in scriptures does it teach that there's some kind of like exorcism formula. Okay? And this is where Hollywood comes in, because what happens in every Hollywood movie about something like this? What do they do? Call up the priest, right? And he comes, and he has holy water and a cross, and you know what I mean? And they're like, he's going to perform the exorcism. So, and a lot of people believe that because they see that. They're like, okay, uh, you know, something, something, my house seems haunted. I'll call Pastor Mike. He's like, I want to go to your house, okay? Here, here's the thing. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that. (laughs) Um, Okay. (laughs) Are you done? (laughs) Okay. So the power belongs to Jesus alone. Probably the greatest mistake the seven sons of Sceva made was their failure to realize that Paul was not casting out demons on his own accord. He was doing it in the power of Jesus, the power that Jesus gave him, right? So the seven sons of Sceva had no power over the demon they confronted. They had no relationship with God. They were not believers in Christ. They did not possess the power or the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, the next verse records how the people in Ephesus responded to this whole thing. Because remember, we're in Ephesus now. People are seeing what's going on, right? 
And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. So this whole thing that occurred, basically, what happened here is it invoked praise from the people. They, the Lord Jesus' name was extolled. The fear in regards to respect for Jesus, it resulted in praise to Jesus. So now, here's what happens. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, for those that believe, it re resulted in life change. So people believed it resulted in life change. They turned their backs on their old ways in occult and demonic practices. And we're going to get to a little bit about this because when we get to the Ephesians passage, we see that this, this, there was a demonic stronghold in Ephesus. And that's why this is happening here. So not only did they get rid of the books of magic arts, the value in today's dollars, this 50,000 pieces of silver, was roughly three to five million dollars. So think about that. They took their stuff that's worth three to five million dollars and said, we're burning it. And some people will be like, well, they could have sold it and donated the money to the poor. Well, that wouldn't be smart, right? Because if they're books about demonic practices, they don't want those in circulation. Okay? So that's basically what's happening here. So here's what happens. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. So now we have to get to this point now. But what about believers in Jesus today? The question, right? Can we cast out demons? Or should we cast out demons? Like, what's going on? What's our role here? What's our role as believers here? Well, the purpose of Jesus' disciples casting out demons was to show Christ's power over demons and verify that the disciples were acting in his name by his authority in the apostolic time. There's a shift later in the New Testament regarding demonic warfare. The teaching portions of the New Testament, Romans, this is the next book, through Jude refer to demonic activity but they don't teach about casting demons out, nor are believers ever instructed to. So here's what happened. Here's what believers are taught about demons. So now we have to understand the doctrine of demons. What are we really taught? What's our role? We'll start with Ephesians. That was written about eight or so years after this occurrence. And basically, it was back to the church in Ephesus where there were still things like this going on. There was still a stronghold. There were still things like this. So we had believers living in Ephesus. So let's start off first with this. The first is our role as far as dealing with demons, dealing with this whole thing. The first thing is get your business done with Jesus. You need to trust Jesus. He says this back to them. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. He's talking about Satan. Okay? The spirit that now is in work in sons of disobedience. So now what Paul's saying, he's writing back to him. He's saying, hey, that's how you used to live. You used to follow after this satanic, demonic, occult type stuff. So Paul reminds them, 
This was your condition before Jesus. But then he goes on to the very famous verses, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So, so now what, what does Paul do? He reminds them of the gospel. Trusting Jesus breaks the rule of the prince of the power of the air. That's what trusting Jesus does. It breaks the rule of demonic struggles. It breaks the rule of Satan and his demons. So he's saying, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's a reminder of the gospel, right? We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. The, the Bible teaches us this, that all who believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave on behalf or for our sins will be saved. We break any stronghold of Satan and demons in our life. That's a good news, isn't it? Okay, so if you watch those movies and you're like, what's going on? Okay, you don't need to worry about the stronghold of Satan and his demons in your life. But the second thing, now that we're a believer, now that you trust in Jesus, the second thing is you need to be aware or maybe beware, right? Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sober-minded, meaning be aware of your surroundings and what's going on. The devil, you know what he wants? The demons, you know what they want out of Christians? They want us to fall, okay? They want to make a mockery out of God. They want to make a mockery out of you. They want to make a mockery out of his word. They want to make a mockery out of the church. So guess what? We're marked. Do you know that? We're marked. God wants to bring us down. I hope you're praying for each other. I hope you're praying for me. God wants to bring us down. That's why, you know, when you see like famous pastors and stuff fall from grace and people are like, <laughs> knew that, right? That's how people are. Well, guess what? That guy has a mark on his back. And what Peter says is, says, be aware. This is going on. Be sober-minded. Don't go there. Don't do that. Don't hang with those people. Don't talk to that person. Don't text that person. Don't do, you, this is what we need to be aware of. So for each of us in our own little circle, right, we need to be aware. What are these schemes that are coming up? How am I going to be devoured, okay? Because Satan and his demons still have power, right? They still have power. So then Ephesians talks about this a little bit more. Be aware. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Okay, this is a short verse. Be angry, right? We know that we can be angry, but he says, and do not sin. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. Whatever your sin is, when you pursue that sin, you're giving the devil an opportunity or a stronghold in your life. Okay, you're allowing, you're opening the door. You're opening the door to those types of things. So we dig our heels in and we continue to sin. The devil has opportunities to make matters worse for us and make matters worse for the people that we love. We know this to be true. One little sin, right, can snowball. One little sin. Don't ever let those little foxes that destroy the vineyard, don't ever let them in. Because guess what? It's just going to mount up. Nobody commits the big sins 
just by happenstance or accident, okay? It's always little. Starts in the mind. That's why Jesus in the Beatitudes, right? Heart and mind, that's what he talks about. That's what he talks about. So the third is we need to resist the devil. It says, you know, just submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the more we follow Jesus and submit to his desires, the more we resist the devil. Some people, how do we resist this, the devil? You don't get up and chant anything, right? You just, you submit your life to Jesus. You, you obey him. And the more you do what Jesus desires, the more Satan and his demons see you as a person that's resisting. I'm going to move on. Some of you, a classic book, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's a good little book about kind of the demonic warfare. And, um, you know, it's not biblical truth in that book, but basically it's, it's you know, something that we can see, okay, is this what's going on? Is, is Satan trying to get a stronghold or a foothold in my life? And, you know, what James says, resist. Submit to the Lord, resist. But the fourth is this. The fourth is this. Be prepared for battle. We as Christians, some guys love this. They're like, yeah, okay, battle. This is what I'm talking about. Well, here's the thing. We need to be prepared for battle, okay? There is a spiritual battle. And this is where some people, I remember a long, long, long time ago, I was teaching a youth ministry lesson. I was talking about this. And uh, one of the kids was like, this sounds like Star Wars or something, you know, because it's like this spiritual cosmic battle, right? But the truth is, is this is what the scriptures teach, this is what the scriptures teach. So I'm just going to, whoa, where did that go? Okay. Okay. Just going to go through and just make some comments on this, okay? Put on a whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our daily battles are spiritual battles. And I believe as a Christian, pretty much most, if not everything, is spiritual. Like we think things are physical, but there's spiritual things going on, right? So what Paul does is he uses this illustration of battle. So we can just kind of remember. It's like, it, it, you know, it's, it's an object lesson. So he says this. He says, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So he talks about this belt of truth. What's the belt of truth? It's not a real belt necessarily, but he's saying, stand, therefore, be girded up in truth. Okay, you stand for the truth, in the truth, and you want to tell the truth. So that's the way that we battle. And having put on a breastplate of righteousness. So obviously we want to live in righteousness and we want to do what's right. We have situations in life that come our way all the time. We want to do the right situation. We want to pick the right choice. We want to do the right thing. Most of the times we want to do the convenient, the easy, the path of least resistance thing. But we got to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is obviously something that we've been talking about through Acts, right? Being ready to share the gospel with people. Ready to give the peace. Ready to give the hope. You know, you've probably been in hundreds, if not thousands of conversations in the past two or three years. And people bring up political things, right? Oh, I can't believe this. I can't believe they're making us do that. I can't believe, right? It, it, blah, 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 right? That's, so here's what you need to do. You need to steer those conversations to the places 
that bring people peace. That's what you need to do. I don't know how you're going to do it. You're going to figure it out in that situation. So then it goes on and says, In all circumstances, take up a shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one. So the shield of faith, and you know, this is, this is how I only imagine this. Maybe you probably imagine it's these fiery darts to kind of wound your faith. Hey, your kid's sick. Hey, you're sick. Hey, you lost your job. Hey, this tragic thing happened. You still have faith in that God? You serve that God? That's how I imagine this going down. And what I say is, yup, because the truth is we have to have faith that no matter what goes on in this present world, it's not going to change my standing with Jesus who loves me. So then he goes on and says, and take the helmet of salvation. Okay, this is the, the mind, you know, the helmet of salvation. We're just constantly reminded, Christ died for me. Christ is the one who saves me. I'm not working for my salvation. I didn't earn my salvation. I'm no better than anybody else. Jesus loves me, and I accepted his gift of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And that's what we hold fast to. That's why we teach what we teach. That's why when we get to Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20, I had to talk about all this demonic stuff, right? Because we stick with the word of God. We study through the word of God. We're on week 27 in Acts and we're only in chapter 19. And people have told me, you can't really go more than eight weeks in a series or people will lose attention. Whatever. Okay? Here's the thing. We need to study the word of God. That's where we get our information from. And guess what? The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. And that's what judges the hearts and the minds of people. And that's what we live by. So then it goes on praying in all times in, in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So basically what's going on here is this, is we need to be praying. Okay, I'm not going to skip to that yet. So we need to be praying. But notice this, in all these passages that I shared to you, and I didn't just pick what I felt like picking and avoid other things, we're never told how to cast out demons or that we should even consider it. We're never told that. It's not taught. So it seems that the word of God was complete. Christians have more weapons in battle against the spiritual world. The role of casting out demons was replaced, for the most part, with evangelism and discipleship. You know how we stave off the evil forces, right? With the word of God, with telling people about who Christ is and discipling them. Us learning more about what the scriptures teach. Now, since the teachings of spiritual warfare in the New Testament do not involve casting out demons, it's difficult to determine instructions on how we would do something like that. So if somebody comes up to you and says, oh yeah, we, we got a haunted house or whatever, like how do I cast this out? Well, I really can't say, well, this is what you do. Step one. Okay, do this. Step one, throw some water. Step two, we don't have that information. It's, it's not in the scriptures. And it doesn't really teach us if that's necessary to behave in that way. So the doctrine of Satan and demons is a lot for a Sunday, isn't it? It's a lot for a Sunday. Most of you came here early because you're like, I want to go to the beach. And, uh, and this is a lot to chew on. But I want to leave you with two passages this morning. Okay, I want to leave you with two passages. 
First is the promise. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Don't be afraid, okay? Don't be afraid. He who is in you is greater than he. The Holy Spirit is greater than he. We have more power. Satan is very powerful. Demons are powerful. But he that's in you is greater than he that's in the world. It's not saying you are more powerful. The Holy Spirit that is in you is more powerful. And the second is this. Don't lose your focus. At one point, Jesus sent out 72 disciples, and he had given them authority over demons. When they came back to report to the Lord what had happened, they were excited about being able to cast out demons. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Well, guess what? Jesus brought them back to focus. Here's what Jesus says. Here's what Jesus says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's where our focus needs to be. Don't get all caught up in all this other stuff, right? Rejoice. Your name is written in heaven. And let me just tell you, if you don't trust in Jesus, your name's not there yet. But what I want, what we want as believers for you is for you to trust him. And then you can rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. We're thankful, Lord, for these doctrines. And even though they seem crazy and strange, we know that this is what's in your word. And we know that there is a battle. We know, Lord, that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And we rest in that. I pray for the believers here. I pray, Lord, that we would prepare ourselves for battle because we don't know what this world will throw at us, but we know who we serve. So we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to keep our focus on you and rejoice that our names are written in heaven. In your precious son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may rest.